Welcome to Meanwhile in Memphis, where New Memphis is celebrating our city by providing a weekly window into the ways Memphians are solving problems, looking forward, and successfully shaping the community. Good morning, Memphis. Welcome to your weekly episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. I am Anna Mullins-Ellis, your host today, your singular host. I'm usually here with my teammate, Christy Mullen, who could not brave the uh, icy weather. We are recording this uh, the week after the um, great snowstorm of 2021. So this is the first time I've left my house in a solid 10 days. So I might be a little extra chatty uh, with our guests, but it's a good thing because we have two amazing guests today. Uh, First up, we have invited Trey Carter, uh, who is a leader in many pockets of our community. He serves um, on the Chambers Board. He runs the Olympic Career Training Institute, both runs it and is the founder, creator, um, I think is a really innovative mind in the workforce development space. Um, And then we also have another fabulous community leader, Imani Jasper of Neighborhood Preservation, Inc. She is a program manager there a city planner, a person who um, deeply understands the importance of reducing blight in our communities is going to share, I think, some really thoughtful nuggets about the work that they do over at uh, NPI, Neighborhood Preservation, Inc. Um, Both of those organizations just doing great work for our city in their respective sectors. So without further ado, let's get to the meat of this episode. Our first guest, as I said, is Trey Carter. He is an entrepreneur and the founder and president of Olympic Career Training Institute. They are an organization that helps do skills training for uh, folks in our community, specifically for uh, the logistics uh, sector. So thinking about those who might be um, driving trucks or uh, driving forklifts, sort of helping manage the process of moving all of the stuff that comes through Memphis every year. Trey is also, um, he's a 2006 graduate of Florida A&M University's Mobley School of Business, which he's going to talk a little bit about. He is a 2011 graduate of Leadership Memphis. Uh, went away to college, as I mentioned, but graduated from White Station High School right here in Memphis. Um, uh, he is uh, recently named a Memphis Business Journal 40 Under 40 class of 2020, so just last year, and is involved, as I said, in a number of community and uh, is a leader in many community initiatives that we are going to discuss. So let's welcome Trey. All right. So today in the studio, we have Trey Carter, an entrepreneur, founder and president of Olympic Career Training Institute. Trey, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. I know we've been having some some weather across the city as well as the country. So uh, I appreciate you being able to get us in and uh, glad everybody's back to trying to get back to normal. Yes, yes. I think um, it, it, we are here, everybody, on Monday morning, uh, the week after Snowmageddon, and um, it felt weird to drive my car after 10 days of not leaving my house. So thanks for braving the conditions and joining us. Um, we wanted to have you, obviously, we, we I want to start by just asking about Olympic Career Training Institute. What What is the institute? How did you guys get started? And what is your role there? Sure. Well, Olympic Career Training Institute, I would say, is a byproduct of a company I worked for prior to. Uh, My father, uh, Pat Carter, he was known as Pat Carter. uh, He had a staffing firm in Memphis called Olympic Staffing. Uh, He started that company in 92. And the whole goal of usually staffing industry companies is to find a client that needs skilled talent. They find the talent and ultimately uh, get the talent over to that customer that needs said workforce. Well, when I moved back to Memphis in 2006 from college, I went to school in Tallahassee, Florida, Florida A&M University, 
my goal was to come and take over dad's business or learn it and then ultimately work my way up to running it sometime. Not immediately. So um, when I first got back to Memphis, it was a culture shock because I'm in Tallahassee, Florida. We got over 100,000 college students in a small town. So the uh, atmosphere was a lot different when I got back to Memphis. And I noticed immediately we had success at Olympic staffing with securing a contract that needed certain workforce. But once you get that contract, your job is to find said talent. And that's where we had a lot of issues in the Memphis area to find people who had the skills to go to some of your larger companies here in the city. So my first notion was, Dad, um, where can we find, you know, can we go to the community colleges? We met with a lot of the community colleges and other vocational schools here to say, do you train individuals in these skills? Because we're, we're, we're hurting out here to find the people. And they didn't focus on those logistics and distribution type uh, skill sets. So I did, I said, Dad, I don't want to be the black sheep of the family and run this company in the ground because I can go get a contract, but I can't fulfill the contract. So I said, Dad, if somebody out here could just teach the people the things that we need to know on our contracts, we'll be all right. And so, my, again, my goal was to find that place, send the people there who didn't have the skills but wanted to work, when they come back to us with the skill, we could put them on our contracts. So no one out there that I could find did it. So I just said, Dad, well, look, I think if no one else will do it, I'll do it. So he gave me the ability to learn what it takes to create a school. It took about a year of due diligence. And in 2010 was the first year of Olympic Career Training Institute. So I took the Olympic off because everyone knew Olympic staffing. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, Dad, let me use that word Olympic and call it the Career Training Institute. So that's where, how we started. And it was from a problem with the staffing industry company we had. And I just said, Dad, we need to fix this because we're going to run ourselves in the ground trying to find people who need to do something that we really can't find enough people to do it. So uh, that's where we started training in logistics, distribution, and transportation, which everything from forklifts, cranes, uh, driving 18-wheeler trucks, other types of trucks, uh, like buses and School buses, regular fixed route buses you see with MATA, et cetera. We train people how to drive and utilize those skills inside of distribution centers. So you guys are 10, about a little over 10 years 11 now. 11 now. Yep. Yeah, congratulations. We started January of 2010, so January of 2021 made 11 years. Wow, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I mean, to me, the, the best entrepreneurs are the ones that are bringing us ideas that solve problems, right? And I mean, I would certainly consider this to be um, a social impact as well, because you are, of course, right. serving individuals, but you're also serving the city in a broader sense um, as we're thinking about workforce development and thinking about creating connectivity between what we're training people to do Correct. and what kinds of jobs we have open today in our community. Um, so I are, are there specific employers that you work for or you work uh, sort of in tandem with or is, are you just sort of generally trying to serve the logistics sector? Uh, it's pretty wide range. And I'll give some examples. So, for instance, there, I mean, for those who don't know, Memphis and Shelby County is the distribution capital of the United States of America. So what does that mean? I hear that name, distribution capital. What does that mean? The majority of items and goods that come to the United States, whether it be from Canada, Mexico or even flown over from abroad, usually hit Memphis first as far as the supply chain and then make their way across the country to get to wherever the stores or grocery stores or to the 
uh, retail stores that they are going to be ultimately on the shelf somewhere. Uh, like, for instance, Nike, good example. 100% of Nike's products, apparel, shoes, you name it, comes to Memphis first. Mm. Then it makes its way to the shopping malls, to the stores, to the outlet malls, you name it, across the country. So Memphis needs to be able to handle that type. That's just one That's just one company. And there are several others like that that have a very large presence in Memphis for their distribution. So Memphis has to have the truckers in trucking capacity. They have to have the forklift operators to unload and load the trucks. You have to have the people in the warehouse to sort, ship, receive that type of inventory, put it on the shelves and get it ready. So, And with this large e-commerce world we're in now, a lot of these things are happening. Uh, all of TJ Maxx, Home Goods, Marshall's online e-commerce store is in Memphis. So no matter where you are in the United mm -hmm. States, if you went to homegoods.com or marshalls.com, it's coming out of Memphis going to the final destination. Yeah, we forget that. I mean, obviously, um, you know, FedEx is such a, a behemoth in our community and everyone, mm -hmm. you know, sort of has a, an awareness of that. But knowing that there are actually many other companies, um, oh, yes. you know, both the companies that, as you said, Nike, who has the end product, but also companies that are just in the logistics game in general. So uh, a huge uh, uh percentage in, of our employers are in that in that sector in, in one way or another. So um, so tell me a little bit about the other side of the equation in terms of the the individuals that you're training. How do people come to the institute? Um, you know, it, it, are you is it you guys going out into the community? Are you working specifically, as you said, with um, other trade schools or higher ed? Well, we, we do a little bit of both. Uh, so some examples is I train within the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Mm. And so in that instance, whether you're within the federal prisons or even I do as well with the state prisons, individuals who are sentenced, for the most part, have an end date when they're going to be released. And so their efforts within prison is ultimately to rehabilitate you. And one thing is maybe the mental side, but also you need to have a, a skill because studies have shown if an individual who's been released hasn't found uh, obtained any type of employment or sustainability within 21 days of their release, they're back doing some of the mm -hmm. things that they got uh, locked up for. So what we do is say, hey, we don't want to start the clock when they get out and have that 21-day clock start. Let's train them before they get out of and get released so that they, when they get out on day one, they can go to the job. So I train within the prison systems uh, with individuals who have six weeks or less on their sentence so that they can have a gainful, employable skill unless they uh, get out of prison that is felon-friendly which logistics and distribution mm -hmm. is a felon-friendly industry. Uh, also, we train a lot of military soldiers and veterans who have served in active duty, may have been in the reserves. However, when that ends, they're, not, they're taking off the camouflage and taking off the, the boots, and they need to get into the workforce. We're training them uh, in civilian trades, such as logistics, because a lot of them are very good at logistics mm -hmm. and distribution. Uh, they just don't have any certification leaving the military. So we work with a lot of military. And then we also work with uh, a lot of youth, 18 to 24, who they, a lot of terms, they call it, uh, we have, Shelby County has the largest group of 18 to 24-year-olds who are either not in school or employed. And they call it underserved youth. And so that 18 to 24-year-old bracket, we train a lot of individuals who are in that range who are uh, ultimately needing to get, become productive citizens they're adults now however they don't yet have that skill yet to do one thing that they have chosen to do so we usually say hey logistics is a great entry level especially in the memphis area 
So we work with a lot of underserved youth that are 18 to 24. So we go to companies as well. We work for uh, certain companies who just have a need for certain skill sets. They may have a, you know, a swath of employees who've done one thing and they would love to increase their skill set so mm-hmm. they can make more money or become more competitive inside of their organization. So we will train groups of individuals at just different companies uh, for their needs. Yeah, I'm always surprised that there isn't more of that happening. Um, you know, at New Memphis, we um, are part of the workforce development equation and we hear companies say, we just need more, you know, on our end, it's like, we need more CPAs or we need more uh, engineers. I'm like, well, you know, you're a massive global company. Why don't you go train them? Like find them, you know, they're here in our own backyard. The cost of um, recruiting talent from outside of the market is so, so costly um, when you have this opportunity with this talent in our own backyard. And I, I love to hear that these companies are trying to think more strategically about and again, I mean, obviously they're doing it to help their bottom line, but I do think that there is a foundational social good to helping equip somebody with a skill they didn't have before, Correct. giving them the opportunity for the training. Obviously, then they have a job waiting for them at the end of that training. Um, and I think what is mm-hmm. so compelling about your work is it, it truly is um, it, it is not just an education. It is an education with the, with the real promise of employment at the end of that you know, sort of graduation date. Um, about how many people do y'all serve over the course of a year? Ooh, it, that's a tricky number because depending on how, I would say roughly about 500. Wow. But they're in different classes. Like mm-hmm. some people are in truck driving. Some people are in forklift training. Some people are in warehousing and supply chain. And some people are, like you say, behind bars. Like they're your student. Yeah. But, you know, and we're, you know, so we, we, we have just different cycles of students. So they all, when you say how many, roughly about 500, I would say is a good number. Um, and we're um, looking to always, you know, increase the employability side as well. So we, we not only are training individuals, but we also want to make sure we have those relationships with companies because sometimes they do need to take a chance on someone, especially coming out of prison system or sometimes even coming out of the military. Uh, they, they, they've never worked before in traditional sense. Mm. And so there may be some growing pains, if you will, of understanding how to just, you know, conduct yourself in a, traditional working environment because when you've been on again on the battlefield and it's a lot of yelling and a lot of just different ways that things happen in the military or in prison they just need to acclimate themselves into the workforce and a lot of uh, companies need to understand that they would get a great employee if they would sometimes just give them a chance Mm -hmm. how much of i mean obviously the programming is skills based and that you're learning to drive a truck drive a forklift um but are there any components of y'all's work that address some of the like um, I guess what I would call sort of integrating into the workforce from yes. a, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, we provide a lot of, we call them soft skills as well as employability skills. Okay. So we do give, for instance, mock interviews. How do you conduct yourself and answer questions in an interview? How do you also handle yourself on a day-to-day basis at the work environment? When it's time to go to lunch, understand your time frame. You can't just go to lunch and come back when you are finished eating. There's a certain amount of time. You might get 30 mm-hmm. minutes. You might get 45 minutes. If you're sick, how do you let your boss know or your your manager know or superior know that I won't be in today in a formal manner? Just because you have a headache or what have you, don't just not go to work. You need to let you need to understand communication. Mm-hmm. You need to send an email. You need to probably make a phone call. If they don't pick up the phone, leave a voicemail. And make you know, sometimes we see these types of things that they just don't understand that you should have called someone. 
You should, or if you need to go somewhere. So with certain things like that, beyond how to drive a forklift, you need to know how to be a great forklift employee. Hmm. You know, so we talk, we talk about those things. If you have grievances at work, you know, someone look at you know, especially when you're dealing with certain populations, someone look at you the wrong way. That means something, and they might not have mean. They might have been daydreaming and happened to be glancing your way. They did not mean any slight or disrespect. So we have to teach them. Look, everything is not a confrontation, or everything doesn't need to be challenged. Hmm. You know, and, and then how to, if you do have a conversation with them, this is how the conversation should go. No profanity, no, you know, we, we have to, it's a lot of behind the scenes, you know, scrubbing and, and, and grooming and trying to make them understand be, beyond their circumstances at the moment. So uh, it's fine. I love it. It's a, like, again, it's a social, I'm a social entrepreneur. I know that every day I'm hopefully the success of my business or even you want to consider me being successful means that a lot of other people are successful. Hmm. Because they're getting trained, they're getting employed, their lives are getting better, and a lot of times they're affecting more than one just themselves. There's a family involved. There's, you know, brothers, sisters, significant others, mothers, fathers, who need to see, you know, who are helping this person beyond you. That you're helping a community. So, uh, it, it's great work. I love what I do, and uh, I wake up every day excited to see what I can do to help the next person that I don't even know today, but tomorrow I meet someone new and have a new story. Well, that's how you know you found the right thing. Um, well, I'm sure, you know, if, if uh, for our listeners, um, the name Trey Carter often is like, I know that guy. Or mm-hmm. he, somehow Trey seems to be um, everywhere to all people, which is something that always is impressive to me that you have so much time not just to run this business, which I know I'm sure is, is uh, a time-consuming endeavor, oh, but you serve the community in so many different ways. Um, Trey is a board member of the Greater Memphis Chamber. Uh, he's a board co-chair of Shelby County 911. Um, he's been on all the lists. The top 40 under 40 was his uh, was an honor he received last year in 2020. Um, but I, I wanted to specifically ask you, um, among your many accolades, you were recently honored as a recipient of the Mentor Memphis Grizzlies HBCU Empowerment Award, which is quite a mouthful for 2021. Um, tell us about what that meant to you and how how you got involved uh, in the first place. Uh, well, I was made aware of it. I, I guess there was a nomination process. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of it, so it was it was surprising, but you know, good, surprisingly good news to hear that. However, I am a, a graduate of a historically black college, uh, Florida A and M University in Tallahassee, Florida, and. Uh, specifically the School of Business and Industry. And one of the things that we, when I first was introduced to that school, uh, their business school was touted as just, just it was considered the Marines of business schools. Mm. And they were on list with Harvard and Wharton School of Business and Yale and uh, Northwestern. So I, I felt confident that they could teach me what I needed to know. However, the way they articulate themselves the way the curriculum was um, felt very inviting. Uh, our our uh, dean of the School of Business, Business and Industry at the time was very uh, big on going across the country and finding the best uh, individuals in your larger metropolitan cities and getting them to Florida A&M so that they could go work and, and be entrepreneurs as well as we have what's known as the big board at our school. And on the big board, there's over over 200 Fortune 500 companies who have invested in Florida A&M School of Business. Wow. So when you're walking on the campus through the school, before you get to the front door, you're seeing Nestle and Pfizer and all these different companies on this big board that have invested. And so what our goal was at Florida A&M is not just to be a good employee, 
but to be a leader in an organization or in your own field. If you like in my case, if you're an entrepreneur. And so um, to get that award and ultimately come back to Memphis and, and I'm trying to circle back, uh, it felt good because it also meant that it worked. Whatever mm -hmm. that experiment was at Florida A&M worked because it was an experiment. Uh, one of the things you had to do is you had to learn a foreign language. You had to learn, you had to go take at least a year long internship. Wow. So if you're thinking you're going to finish in four years, that one year, you automatically have to have one year with an internship. So it took, it took me six years to finish because I had a, actually had a, a internship abroad. I was in London, England huh. and I uh, spent time there working during the 20 on the 2012 Olympics. Uh, so I worked with a company that was building the Olympic village, but that experience by itself was probably better than any curriculum I could have had in any textbook or any classroom. And so those things taught me how to survive in different cultures. It taught me how to, even if you're the youngest guy in the room, if you don't look like anyone else in the room and over there in England, they didn't have a pretty good feeling for Americans mm -hmm. at the time. <laughs> uh, this was during the uh, Bush administration. So they thought, I'll, so they had some choice words for me that I didn't even understand their own <laughs> slander. It's probably for the best. And so, but mounting those odds, being able to produce inside the, the, the office as well as making friends there and then ultimately them getting to understand American culture, understand African-American culture a little bit uh, to come back to Memphis and get that HBCU award. I really think it's Florida A&M that made me, I didn't make Florida A&M and, and I think those types of things could be in a kid from Memphis, uh, not really spending too much time outside of Memphis other than some slight travel. Um, I think that was one of the best decisions I could have made. And I'm thankful that the Grizzlies, uh, felt highly enough of me to give me the war. Yeah, I mean I love that they're that they've put this together and uh, each recipient of the award I believe there are eight um Correct. get a $1000 donation to their alma mater so I think that's a nice little give back that you can say for Thank for you. your alma mater. Um tell me just I mean you've talked a little bit about what brought you back to Memphis specifically. Mm -hmm. Um you know, obviously your family's here and your father's company and an opportunity, but Correct. you had so much choice um, as as so many young um, people coming out of college do. And you you chose to come back to Memphis. And I'm mm -hmm. curious now, I mean, what initially, aside from the opportunity, what, you know, what inspired you to come back? And again, you've been such a dedicated community leader. Um, you know, tell me how, you know, since you've been back, what's kept you here? What What is the magnet that Memphis has for you? Uh, well, I look at it in this sense. I, I guess I try to st step back away from it, and I look at Memphis and any other city as a can as a canvas, if you will. Let's let's, let's take it to the to realm of painting. And I think a lot of at the time of me graduating in two thousand six, I actually had an offer from FedEx actually to mm -hmm. move to Miami, Florida, and be over there, South American logistics uh, sector, if you will. But it was out of Miami, Florida. Miami, beautiful city. I lived in Florida at the time, being a resident of Tallahassee, Florida, been to Miami many times. That was a very attractive offer. I understood, I knew what FedEx was just growing up in Memphis. And for them to give me an offer in Miami, Florida, at a very, you know, coming out of school, I was 21 and having a certain amount of uh, salary that I was going to get in a great city. It was very attractive. I also had another offer in uh, Washington, D.C., and so that was an attractive offer. But I always said, now going back to the painting side, I looked at Miami. I said, okay, Miami is a complete portrait. Like the things that happen in 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 Miami, 
have happened over the last probably 50 to 75 years, I wouldn't be doing anything new. I'd just be a small fish in a very big pond or a little speck on mm. a very big canvas. Now, I looked at D.C. I mean, D.C. is the nation's capital. So, you know, how how long would it take for me to climb that ladder, if you will? And then I looked at Memphis and... From what I had heard, because when I moved to, moved to Tallahassee, they're like, are y'all still riding horses and <laughs> dirt roads? I'm like, no, Memphis has, I'm like, we have an NBA team. Like, <laughs> we're not, they, and people just thought it was just this country little thing. And so I just said, well, the perception of Memphis at the time was it was not a complete portrait. And it needed a lot of paint. And so I just said, what, what, where could I affect the community beyond just the business world? But where, where could I grab a brush, a, a, a paintbrush, and do the most painting? Mm. And so I considered Memphis as a piece of art. It's a canvas. It's a very nice, but it's it's some, a lot of blank areas when the perception of Memphis, when it on on the national and even global scale. So I said, well, I think I can do the most good in Memphis. And then I started looking at st- statistics: how many people in Memphis were in poverty versus other places? How many place? How many you know, people in Memphis had attained, you know, high school diploma, any type of education. How many people were um, homeowners? I started kind of just breaking down the data and I just saw that there was a lot of lacking relative to other cities that I had an opportunity to move to. So I just said, well, I don't know how I'm going to do it. At the time, I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I just said, if I were going to make a dent anywhere, I think I have the better, best opportunity to go. And then I was familiar with home. So I said, let me go back home and see if it works. And if it didn't work, I gave myself like a two-year window. I said, by, by 08, I'm going to get either stay and keep, you know, plant my roots or find another opportunity. And, of course, 08 hit, and that was the big bubble burst, housing bubble burst. So every city was kind of hurting at the time. So I just stuck, you know, uh, stayed here and said, what can I can, what can what I do to, you know, even affect more change because now it's worse. <laughs> technically, it's mm-hmm. worse off than what it was when I got here. But uh, things since then have been great personally, uh, business wise. And I think Memphis is just the culture of I can walk around and say, hello, how are you doing? When I got up to New York and tried to speak to someone on the subway, they just look <laughs> at me like, why are you talking to me? And I'm like, I can't live in, the, you know, that type of that type of life. And everybody just on a go. No one has interpersonal relationships. Uh, really look you in your eye and can talk to you. And I have some of those Southern values. So I just said in Memphis, it's more respected to speak to someone. How how you're doing? Tell me about you. My name is Trey. What's your name? I do those types of things on a regular basis. And people warm up to you in Memphis. You can you can find out a lot just grabbing a quick five-minute talk with someone you never knew before. Mm-hmm. You and I are sitting across from each other now and talking. You know, So that doesn't really happen in your bustling, big metropolitan cities. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think you hit on two of the things that when we when we talk about like what is it that makes Memphis attractive, particularly again for young, educated talent who has you know as you described so much opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think two of the key features of Memphis is this is a place you can make a difference, and Memphis seems to be um, attractive to those, whether it be um, social entrepreneurs or you know just business minded entrepreneurs. I think mm-hmm. that there is this real sense that there's something to be built here and there's so much to be done here. And, um, I think that's really empowering for, for, to me, the kind of talent we want, which is the sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. the essence of the grit and grind, um, like people who really want to roll their sleeves up and get something done. But I think there's also absolutely like a cultural appeal to living in a community that does in some ways feel more like a small town in the way in which we interact and the way in which we sort of, um, 
uh, kind of, you know, I, I think of Memphians as really truly being, even though our, there are a million of us, um, being kind of one big family in a way that you don't you don't get that sense in a mm -hmm. Miami or New York. Well, Trey, it's been a delight to have you. Um, for anybody who wants to learn more about the work of Olympic Career Training Institute, where can they learn more, potentially you know, send somebody to a program? Sure. Uh, one of the things about a small city is you can either go to our website is octitraining.com or you can call 901-614-2060. But if you have just a question, you can follow me on Instagram at Trey Carter, T-R-E-Y-C-A-R-T-E-R -E -E 901. Or you can uh, go on Facebook as Trey Carter. I guess the one from Memphis, because quite a few Trey Carters. I didn't yeah. know this. <laughs> but if you look up Trey Carter on Facebook, it's about 100 of us. So the one from Memphis, it went to Florida a University or on LinkedIn, uh, Trey Carter, T-R-E-Y-C-A-R-T-E-R. -E -E so uh, look forward to Meeting. Yeah, reach out. He likes to, he likes to have a meaningful five minute conversation with you. <laughs> yeah, and some people just have a quick question. They just want you know a lot of times too, especially your younger community. They want to text or they want to DM. So mm. you know that probably might be easier just to DM me versus they don't like I don't want to call. I don't make phone calls anymore. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you, there you have it, Memphis. You have the go-ahead to slide into Trey Carter's DMs uh -oh. and <laughs> ask him any question you like. Well, Trey, again, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much for having me, and you all take care. Thank you. Transform your city with New Memphis Fellows. Are you mid-career professional with a passion for transforming your community? Let New Memphis amplify your service. The New Memphis Fellows Program is a leadership development experience for mid-career leaders designed for high-performing professionals already excelling in their careers and positively impacting our community. New Memphis will magnify your impact. Through the Fellows Experience, you will gain concrete resources to aid in our city's progress. Apply today. Visit newmemphis.org for more information. All right, in the studio with us today, we have Imani Jasper. Imani is the program manager for Neighborhood Preservation, Inc., NPI, as I often hear it called in the community. Mm -hmm. um, for those of you who don't know, uh, NPI was founded in 2012. Um, it is, a, a, I think, a project of the Memphis's economic and community development leaders who came together, um, who really wanted to advocate for both legislative and policy change that would allow for um, the removal of blight. And we, we think we talk about blight in Memphis. I'm going to ask you more about this, Imani. Like, mm -hmm. what is it? Mm -hmm. um, what constitutes blight? How do we deal with it? But um, the Neighborhood Preservation Inc. does, they, they fight blight in three clear ways. One, um, by reducing blighted properties. Two, improving neighborhood health. And three, revitalizing neighborhoods. So um, I think I, I'd love to start with just the, the blighted properties question. So mm -hmm. tell us, what what constitutes blight and where do you see blight? You know, if someone's walking around their neighborhood, what could they point to and go, that's blight? Yeah. So we like to be specific in using the term property blight as opposed to blight just with the history of redlining and urban renewal. Blight was often used uh, to refer to people as well as properties. And mm. we want to be very clear that we're talking about blight. We're talking about blighted property, issues with the property, uh, and that people are not the problem in a community. So we're looking at blighted property, meaning something that has not been maintained, um, something that is in terrible physical condition. Also, in terms of its tax status, it also tends to be some issues there. There may be complicated ownership structures, whether it's owned by an LLC or could be heir property, where it's been passed down throughout a family. And there's as many 
owners as you have cousins. And as anyone who's planned a family reunion knows, it's hard to find all of them, <laughs> let alone get them to make one decision on a hotel, let alone what to do with great grandma Susie's house. Um, so when we talk about property, like we talk about properties that are in that rough condition um, that you will know that you'll see it on the exterior, but then there's also some homes where the blighting issue is on the inside where there's been an issue um, with the systems or part of the roof collapsed and now the interior has a large mold issue and that's causing issues with the structure. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways to define property blight. A lot of the first times it gets noticed is if there's high grass and weeds where like the lawn's not getting cut mm. because in Memphis, with as long as the growing season is, you do start to see that the landscaping starts to deteriorate and then you'll start to notice things like the gutters are starting to fall or there's issues with the siding or the roof or hey there used to be windows and now there's not and what's happened to the door and then you can start to see it's open to casual entry and that's sort of when we start to see real things like sliding, sliding downhill quicker with property and so one of the interesting things about memphis is that if you uh, stay, only drive on certain roads and don't go off into neighborhoods, it can be an invisible pop, um, problem. If you just drive east down Poplar, um, the entire way from East Memphis all the way downtown, you can very easily not see this issue. But if you start to go off a couple blocks in one direction here, a couple blocks in one direction there, you can start to notice that, wow, there's a lot of homes that it doesn't seem like anyone's in or anyone's taken care of. And so it can be that sort of silent issue that um, seemed to reach a pretty much a fever pitch and it's not silent anymore. And that's one of the things, the main thing we're focusing on at MPI is making sure that it's a loud problem now, but making sure that we're fixing the problem and making sure that we don't, you know, fix one property here and another one pops up over there, really attacking the systems that sort of sustain this blighted property problem. Mm. So, you know, at, at first glance, no pun intended, this appears just to be an aesthetic problem. Yeah. But it really has so many other consequences for a community. So I think neighborhood health is is, is a pillar mm -hmm. for y'all. Um, tell me, what is the relationship between blighted properties and a community's health? So um, as a lot of our hospital partners have um, begun noticing a lot more in recent years, you can treat a problem at the hospital, but if the home they're going back to uh, has lead paint in it, if it has a mold issue, if it's not pr properly weatherized, if especially if it's a, a senior citizen and there's trip hazards in the home, if they're recovering from knee surgery and they live in a three-story townhome somehow, that's going to be something that gets in the way of their health and their recovery. So health and housing are very strongly linked. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, that we uh, think of some researchers that out of Harvard realized a few years ago that you could very accurately predict someone's lifespan based on their zip code where they were born. So the physical conditions that you're born living into have a great impact on your health outcomes and your life expectancy. So in Memphis, with our um, childhood asthma rates, we've seen um, a lot of work in that area because we have a lot of emergency room patients coming with asthma attacks and you can give them an inhaler and you can give them prescription to take home. But if there's, you know, chipping lead paint on the walls and there's powder and then there's a mold issue and you're constantly breathing in spores, you're going to continue to have that severe problem. Um, even if you aren't living in housing that's blighted, even walking past it, they've noticed can increase your stretch levels. If you're, um, say that you're, um, 10 years old and you live within walking distance of your school and you get to walk to school or you live walking distance of your work and you can walk to work because that makes sense for you. And you're walking past a series of houses that aren't taken care of, that looks like someone has broken in the windows. They may be tagged. They probably look a little scary. That's going to get your blood pressure up. It's mm -hmm. going to cause a stress response in your body and walking past that day after day will have a physical impact on you as well as a psychological impact on you. If you're walking past lots of things that aren't taken care of that others don't see value in, do you then start to 
internalize that sort of what am I worth what can I really expect if this is all that's around me so it has a bunch of different impacts on your um, physical and mental health hmm. wow yeah I mean that makes a lot of sense um you know as you talk about value and sort of perceptions of a community I, I, I'm the the final pillar around um revitalizing neighborhoods and really thinking about what is what does neighborhood revitalization mean and it's sort of a sexy term that um obviously you know there's a lot of collaborators in that space oh, yeah. thinking about how to how to create a better future for a community but what role does your work play in that and how does blighted property impact the opportunity of a neighborhood to thrive yeah so um and I'm looking at like the first part of your question. So how does MPI like, get involved in revitalizing neighborhoods? So what we like to do is realize if there's a tool we can provide, if there's something we can show everyone how to do, if we can help get, you know, get the innovative solution started and let the community run with it. That's what we love to do to get the tools that you need in your hands for the community to have um, the program that they want, because there's no better expert on your neighborhood than you. Mm. You live there. You've met some people have raised entire families there. They've lived there as long as they've worked. They live on the same street that they were born on. You are the expert on that community. So if you say, well, we just need to clean up the street. We need trash cans. It's saying, okay, here's how we can connect you uh, with partners who do neighborhood cleanups. Here's who's going to can help you, you know, adopt a trash can or get a city trash can. Here's how you can get this cleaned up. If you want to do your own light survey in the community, great. We're going to get the technology in your hands. We'll train you on how to use it. We'll be tech support, but you have your team. You can go out and go and track the problem in your neighborhood because you know it's there. You just need a little bit of um, tech support. Uh, and just getting off the ground on serving. So helping in areas like that, we love. And then there's also the bigger projects, right? So then there's our partnership with on um, the Klondike Smoky City CDC, where they recently uh, received, I think, 150 lots uh, from the county land bank. And so now we're working with them on, you know, what's their, on helping them get together their strategy for maintaining the lots and what are their long-term goals for housing in the community. It's making sure that they have the support that they need to really make a great success that they want to make and are, I believe are going to make of the whole scenario. So that's been really exciting uh, to see getting off the ground and hearing great things coming out of that project team. And the second part of your question, I have already forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, well, I want to stop you because I think I had the fortune, the good fortune to to learn more about uh, Neighborhood Preservation Inc. And again, your collaborators and the general work you do a few years ago when I was working at High Ground News. And um, I really it was very eye opening to me. Again, I think the average person, when they think of blight, they think of, as you said, tall grass. So, mm -hmm. all right, do we need to organize like neighbors mowing each other's lawns or do we need fresh paint on these buildings? Like this kind of um, Again, it feels like a cleanup project. And what is so interesting about your work um, that I think most people do not understand are the policy implications. Mm -hmm. um, and that they're, you know, so I, I'm asking one because you, you talked about the land bank and I think most people don't know what that is. So mm -hmm. what is the land bank, first of all? And how, again, how do you guys tackle your work from a systemic perspective? Um, and what does that look like day to day? Okay, so what is the land bank? So the land bank, the Shelby County land bank um, is one of the main land holding um, land banks. So there's also the city land bank, which is the Blight Authority of Memphis, but I'm going to focus my comments on the Shelby County land bank for now. Uh, any property in, um, in Shelby County that is more than three years tax delinquent is eligible for the tax sale. Um, if no one bids on it at the tax sale, it's then transferred to the ownership of the Shelby County land bank, who's then responsible for maintaining it. And they're looking to sort of 
Shall I get it back into productive use, both in terms of its presence on in the physical world and also from a tax perspective, mm-hmm. you know, get it back out to a point where it's owned by someone who's doing something with it and that's paying taxes on it. And so with the um, Klondike project, it was realizing that they saw that there were a lot of parcels in their community that were owned by the land bank and so that they were that they could be held for, you know, like a large development project, which I mean, from a city, that's my background in city planning, Mm. from a planning perspective makes a lot of sense because then rather than having sort of piecemeal neighborhood projects, you can just have one that happens at once and sort of swoop in and take care of the entire issue at hand. Um, It took a little bit more um, midwifery to uh, figure out how to um, get that approach to work for a um, a CDC, a community development corporation. Um, We hear a lot about the other CDC in the news, Mm -hmm. Center for Disease Control. That's the main one. Uh, And community development, when you're saying CDCs, plural, it's community development corporation. That's the one we always have to uh, do a lot of um, information with our interns on. It's like, so you guys do a lot of work with the Center for Disease Control? No, (laughs) other ones. (laughs) Other ones. But yeah, with CDC. So now there's a process um, in place at the Land Lake for bulk transfer of property so that if there's other CDCs that say, hey, we feel we can take on a project of this size. We want to look at, you know, obtaining all the properties in our community that are vacant and land bank owned, that there's a process in place for that to happen in neighborhoods that aren't Klondike. And so if you're interested in that, there is a there's a process in place. There's been a policy change to allow for that kind of transformative work to happen. Got it. Yeah. So I I guess I hear more about this from like the downtown Memphis Commission um, as it relates to trying to track down and motivate a property owner to do something? Is that work that you guys do as well? Uh, or is that uh, mostly the county and the city? So we do this. Uh, we So yes, this does happen with our group. Um, there's the light elimination program from THDA where they've actually offered up some state funding uh, to demolish um, blighted homes that are past the point of rehabilitation at a certain point. If you, you know, the wall is shot, the roof is, the walls are shot, the roof is shot, the foundation shots and needs total system repair. It's halfway falling down. It's, it's time to demolish it. Whereas other properties, well, this is actually in pretty decent shape. Like, you know, if we went in there and fixed a couple of things, this could be a house that someone could move into, even if not right away, maybe within the year. Mm. Um, So when we're looking at properties like that, it's looking at, okay, well, who owns this? How do we find them? Um, If it's an air property, uh, there was one instance where I think we had someone come into the office and we had basically drawn out their family tree on the board to help them figure out who they needed to call to sell this property (laughs) to us because it was a lot of people. Yeah. Um, And so we do some of that work um, with the individual properties within the blight elimination program specifically trying to find owners. And then there's also for, if there's like a a bigger and slightly more complicated one, if it's um, some apartment buildings in particular can be tricky that way. A lot of them tend to be owned by LLC. So it's hard to track people down. Um, And so it'll take a lot of creative work sometimes to figure out who owns it, who's part of it, who is it is the LLC still active, who was the officers, who should we get in contact with? Um, one of um, the partnerships we um, manage, the Blight Elimination Steering Team, um, has four committees, the reuse and revitalization of vacant properties. They um, had a top 20 list of a blighted and abandoned apartment complexes, realizing it that this was a bigger issue faced all, an issue faced across the city. They needed to look at who owned these apartment complexes. And they embarked on this project to figure out who owned what. I think they ended up finding somebody on Facebook of all places. Um, <laughs> Can't uh, hide from, yeah. No, and there's people that you know live you know around the world. There's people who own property in Australia and domestically. It could be as far as you know California. You know people live in Israel. All kinds of places. Um, 
that you just are saying like, hey, remember that apartment complex you own? It very much needs work done, done on it. Would you, we need you to do something about this because the conditions people are living in are gone, inhumane. And something needs to be done about it. So tracking people down is, um, there's a, a member of our um, team who is absolutely fantastic at this. Uh, she's found people all kinds of ways through all these complicated web searches. She is absolute. And I'm not even going to give the people she's looking for her name. <laughs> she works under darkness. <laughs> under darkness. And that's a um, wonderful person. But these, uh, yeah, absolutely great work happening and finding landlords who are out of town and whether they knowingly or unknowingly let the property get into this condition, letting them know that yeah, we're, we're reaching out to you about this. And if it gets to the point where environmental court needs to contact you about mm. this, they will as well. I remember reading about a partnership that MPI had with the law school. Is mm -hmm. that, was it utilizing law students for some of the, I guess, more legal? I mean, I, <laughs> you can, so the can you tell I'm not a lawyer <laughs> for, you know, the legal stuff? <laughs> yeah. So the neighborhood preservation clinic, I think is what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Yes. So um, our um, president, Steve Barlow, is the co-director of that um, legal clinic, uh, along with um, Professor Danny Shafson. Um, and they do fantastic work. So they take, I think, second and third year law students. I, that may be incorrect, but I know it's definitely not the first years. Okay. I know that's not it. Um, and so it's allowing them to practice basically under their licenses as attorneys and prosecuting um, blighted property owners um, on behalf of the city. So one thing we, they realized early on was that if the city wanted to really go out and prosecute all these negligent landowners, it was going to take legal manpower that they just did not have. So with the clinic, what happens is they have an orientation. They just don't go in blind. They're learning. It's hands-on job learning. But every semester, the city gets about seven additional lawyers hmm. that they didn't already have to help prosecute these cases. And so then you get students that um, stay in the city and keep working these cases um, and that they do it, you know, multiple years within law school. I think um, one of the lawyers on our staff came out of the clinic and had a great time there and is now working for us doing that kind of work almost full time, which is fantastic to see that program really have an impact on folks. Um, but it's always really great. We put together um, a uh, basically a city tour uh, for the uh, law students coming in, not all of them are from Memphis. Mm -hmm. So saying, getting them on board with everything's like, okay, so what is property blight? Um, as you're touring communities, here's things you can think of in addition to, um, you know, the specific property at hand. If you're talking to someone about rehabbing it, looking around in the neighborhood and seeing what else is there. If you're, you know, looking and seeing what's missing from a community, getting them to start taking a more holistic view of a community. Like, so there's like the route that we give them, we point out, you know, successes, we point out current MPA cases, Neighborhood Preservation Act litigation, that's the statute that blighted properties are prosecuted under. And we also teach them to look, look at things like, okay, so we just crossed a major road. What's different now? Okay. Somebody count all the tires you see, count the burnt down homes you see. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody found out when you see a grocery store, something that's an actual grocery store that you would stop at, not a corner store, like a Kroger, Aldi, cash saver, something like that. And you get about an hour and a half into it and people are like, oh, we haven't seen one yet. So there's a lot more problems in communities with a lot of blighted properties than just the properties themselves. So getting them to look at things like that. And it's always really fun because we ended, well, when we could do it in person, we ended at Cozy Corner, which was always my favorite place. Um, <laughs> Never a bad place to end. It's a great opportunity for them to learn as well. So you talked a little bit about um, Klondike, Smoky Cities. Um, are there other neighborhoods that are a focus for y'all or are there other um, 
particular neighborhood projects that have you you know you guys have made significant progress on that you are you all are proud of or yeah uh, I would be absolutely remiss if I did not mention the um, Renaissance of Steel Apartments in Fraser, mm. um, which I think are. Um, close to, I think, 80% leased up. So that was an apartment complex that we, um, in partnership with Comcat Partners, um, The Works, um, a bunch of other um, groups and banks that I am uh, <laughs> blanking on the names of right now. It was, a, it was a very big partnership to get this one apartment complex rehabbed. It was part of like the um, MLK zone in Fraser. So looking at the area around a school that there's housing that families can move into and would want to move into. Um, and that there's also around the school, it's also safe around the school because there's not this great big empty apartment complex mm -hmm. just hanging out across the street. So those have been fully rehabbed and I think are almost completely moved into and we're just waiting to when we can safely have a staff tour of the facility because I've seen, I saw pictures of it in progress. I drove by it before it was started. I'm really excited to see what they have now. So that's been a huge project for us. I mean, in terms of other neighborhoods we're focused on, Technically, we're citywide. Um, if there's a project that you need our help on or would like to talk about, if we could offer help, we're here for you. Um, MPIMemphis.com. Feel free to email us, call us. Um, we will try and do what we can to help out. So those are our, those are the two biggest projects we've done recently. Um, but that's not to say that we won't look at doing other projects outside of that area. Got it. Well, tell us a little bit about you before I before I let you go. What you mentioned that you are a city planner by trade. Mm -hmm. um, so, are you a Memphian um, by by birth, or did you find your way here through this work, or no. why Memphis is always no, the as right I question. like to introduce myself to um, older folks at community meetings. As you can tell from my accent, I am not um, a native Memphian. Uh, <laughs> I'm a carpetbagger. I am from Maryland originally. Okay. Uh, Prince George's County, just outside of DC. My um, dad's family had been there um, since. Basically, in the D.C. area, since they stopped being slaves, basically, yeah. my mom uh, came out east for college and basically never went back to California. Um, so that's where I was born and raised. Um, I went to college at um, Cornell University, city planning, undergrad and master's because they had a five and a half year program where if you did undergrad, you could basically have um, advanced credits at that level apply to your grad degree. So I could do grad school a semester cheaper than I could anywhere else. <laughs> uh, fun fact, love my school. Got me a lot of great training for the past week of surviving in ice and snow. I <laughs> uh, got to tell them my favorite advice, which was walk like a penguin. You'll but you're less likely to fall if you walk like a penguin on ice. You'll feel silly, but you'll move slower, but you'll fall less. Um, so I did programs there. My undergraduate degree graduated with honors uh, with a degree in urban and regional studies and then completed my master's in city and regional planning. Um, how I got to this work is a little bit more of an interesting path because my whole undergrad, the big topic that everyone was talking about was gentrification. It was what I did my honors thesis on. That was a program that was a big topic that's still impacting a lot of cities. But then in grad school, I started looking at, well, what's the other side of the coin? If you consider gentrification to be a problem of excess of investment, of lots of investment coming into a community, of a lot of change in income and turnover, what if you look, what's the other side of that problem? What happens when there's absolutely no investment, uh, whether at the city level or even at people at the individual level can't make that investment? What happens then? And that's when you start to see property blight. So I got the opportunity to do a fellowship in um, Cleveland at the Thriving Communities Institute looking at, that was uh, a group that was looking at property blight in Cleveland the way that we at MPI look at blight here. Um, so it was a fantastic summer and it was really an area where I saw this as like a passion area of mine where you look at 
a lot of cities and you see that, you know, there's no land to build anything, everything's too expensive, they're building up and there's like this constriction with space and you can sort of see vacancy as sort of as a weird opportunity almost to mm. where you have vacant land that other cities would kill for. You just have to figure out how to make it work for your current needs. And there's a great capacity to be creative and to meet needs in vacant property and to overcome challenges in this field. And I think that's what I was attracted to. One of the things you learn in planning school is that the issues you face at a city level, you're not, it's, you shouldn't really focus on fixing them, right? Because they're problems that took more than a lifetime to create. So to think that you're going to get it done within the first five years of your career and, you know, get your award and write your book and write off into the sunset isn't really accurate. It's what problem do you want to work? Uh, what problem do you want to talk about and ruminate over? You're not going to solve the Rubik's Cube, but if you can get one side all one color, that's a huge success. So which side do I want to focus on? How do you want to impact change? What do you really, what problem do you want to work? And for me, that's property blight and strengthening and restoring communities. How long have you been with MPI? I have been with MPI for, it'll be three years on March 5th, which just flew by. <laughs> <laughs> So did 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 you move to Memphis then three years ago or have you okay. three years ago? Yes. So I um it was a really it was a fat it was a fascinating move to Memphis. I think I defended my exit project on a Monday and then on Wednesday I was interviewing it. <laughs> wow. And then I just moved out the next month. So it was just like okay, let's go, let's do it. This is the one. And so visiting Memphis for the first time, I'm. As a planner, you can look at a lot of things about cities. It's like, okay, we'll put up the census tracts and we'll map it and we'll look at, you know, it's, you know, education and health outcomes across a variety of topic areas. But there's nothing that beats your gut feeling about a place. Mm. And so coming to Memphis for this first time, you're walking around and you're talking to people. My favorite thing to do was talk to Uber drivers. Like, what do you think about the city? And you hear a lot of opinions. Um, <laughs> but it's... It, it's, it's a city that has and still has for me the feeling of there's something amazing that's about to happen here and I want to be a part of it when it does. Um, and that was the thing that sold me on the city. So as a Memphian, a Memphian of three years standing, that's what keeps me in love with the city, that there's something really great about to happen and I really want to be here for it when it does and I want to be part of making it happen. Oh, that's beautiful. And what, what we love to hear at our work in New Memphis is – individuals inspired by their own again you know not everyone's going to be a city planner but no. um to see again you know I, one of the things that is so fascinating to me about your work is that it really does take so much collaboration oh, to yeah. revitalize a neighborhood and it's not something that can just be done by you know somebody in the city's office or you know somebody working on the blight issue like it, it you know those who are working on education reform on housing issues on uh, mm -hmm. public transportation it, it all like really um, the, uh, to me, like the center point is this effort uh, in Memphis to revitalize neighborhoods. And I know it does in some ways feel like, um, you know, you're eating an elephant because there's so much, as you said, you know, I mean, there's vast swaths of Memphis that need this kind of investment and yeah. need this, this focus and attention. So we appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Um, thank you again. This was Imani Jasper from the Neighborhood Preservation Inc. You can learn more about their work at UP, I'm sorry, npimemphis.org. Imani, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a good one. Let New Memphis help get you connected. Launch is a free program that provides opportunities for all college students, just like you, to connect to the networks and professional opportunities that will help you to launch a successful career right here in Memphis. Visit newmemphislaunch.com to learn how you can get involved.
All right, that does it for this week's episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. Again, my name is Anna Mullins-Ellis. I am the president and CEO of New Memphis, a local nonprofit that is working to make Memphis magnetic for talent, working to make sure Memphis is livable and lovable. We love that you join us here every week on this program. As always, we hope that you like what you heard today. Uh, I will once again invite you to follow all things New Memphis by literally following us on Instagram. We are at The New Memphis. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, again, if you're if this content interests you every week, I promise we have lots more across our social channels, across our website. Um, we hope that you go to newmemphis.org and learn more about our work to help shape the community and develop leaders in Memphis. Um, if you have ideas for us, please do share ways to get involved. Um, we love to share your suggestions. If you have, uh, if you're working on an interesting project and you want to be a guest, please reach out. You can reach us at uh, info at newmemphis.org. Drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. So until next Tuesday, we will uh, have a great week, Memphis, and we'll talk to you soon. Meanwhile in Memphis is brought to you in partnership with WYXR, produced by New Memphis and hosted by Anna Mullins-Ellis and Christy Mullen. For more information, please visit newmemphis.org. Audio for this show is recorded and produced by the OAM Network. For more information, please visit pod901.com.